Hello, Quentin Jordan, and welcome to Spooks. How are you? I'm delighted, Denzel. I'm delighted that technology is working. Technology is a wonderful thing sometimes, and sometimes, as you well know, it isn't. But through the, the wonders of modern technology, we have you with us all the way from sunny East Lothian. Uh, uh, Quint, I beg your pardon? It is as well. It's, it's quite sunny. It's, it's miserable here in Loch Lomond side, let me tell you. Uh, well, that's we're getting in two hours then. You'll be getting that just directly, so just button up, because I think this has been the worst start to a winter I remember for a long time. Um, but for some reason, they call it autumn now. Do they? Apparently, November is the autumn. Oh, used to. I, was, I always thought it was the winter. I was born on the 28th of November, and I always thought I was born in the winter, but apparently I was born now in the autumn, which is a bad shock. I was born on the 29th of June. I was always bloody certain I was born in the winter. <laughs> well, a mother will would be in those days. But but, but winter, no, no, that's actually, that's spring now, June. Did you know that? No, no. June, June is the spring. Yes, it is. So just just to keep you informed on the seasonal vagaries of um, the way things have changed now. I don't know where this has come from. Probably Donald Trump. But Douglas says we're not to get into politics, so we better not, not mention him at no, all. No, that, that's true. That's true. I'm not going to tell him that I had a uh, canvas card from Kenny McCaskill this morning either. Oh, 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 Douglas will be having conniptions. I know, I know, I know. He's, uh, in, his, he's in his way into Glasgow for a secret mission, and he'll be, he'll be wondering... He'll be sitting here dreading what I'm doing with you on the podcast because yeah. he'll know we're both kind of politically minded and he'll be just chewing his fingernails wondering what's going to No, I, I'm trying not to be politically minded. I've sworn a blood oath not to watch any of these so-called debates uh, no. or pay any attention to the election. Uh, in fact, I'm getting out of the country on the 3rd of December. I'm not coming back until it's all over. Well, I mean... I think that I think that's, that that could appeal to a lot of people. There was a an old history teacher of mine, three teachers from old, my old school. On the day of Princess Diana and Prince Charles' wedding, they hired an old fishing boat and went out into the middle of the Kilbrannan Sound and stayed there until the next day and got drunk. Um, so that shows you the length some people go to avoid national events. Well, just just to get drunk. <laughs> Well, I mean, they were pretty keen in that anyway. To be perfectly honest, I mean, they were these people were they were they were heavy drinkers at Campbelltown Grammar School in those days. I'm sure that doesn't happen now. <laughs> anyway, uh, no. uh, to to business, Quentin, you are one of the founding fathers of what they call now Tartan Noir. Uh, you were first published in 1993, and you have a brand new offering for us just published a few days ago, called The Bad Fire. Can you tell us a wee bit about that, please? Hey, I'll tell you about the title. I'd, uh, I had a, it's not unknown for me to have a fight with my publisher's marketing department about titles. <laughs> Surely uh, not. They, they, th they think they're better at them than me, and they're not. They never have been, and they never will be. Uh, I mean, I decided this book was going to be called The Bad Fire before I decided what was going to be in it, basically. Um, <laughs> It, uh, I mean, look, when I was a kid, I, I had two grannies. I actually knew both my grannies, which not everybody can say. Um, Very true. I had one granny who was who was relatively young. I mean, there's only 13 years between me and my youngest uncle. Um, so that granny preferred to be called grandma because she thought it sounded younger. My mother was that too. My, my other granny had no such niceties. And uh, she was more fierce. And one of our favourite sayings was, you do that, you'll go to the bad fire. Or oh, a cracker. No doubt about what she meant. And that's, that phrase has stuck with me ever since. So, well, that's uh, a... so that's how the book came to be called, The Bad Fire. That, that's an excellent... I, I never thought of it in those terms, but now you mention that saying, I remember that saying very well from my childhood too. My, my, I was lucky enough to know both of my grannies, and they, they, one of, my Scottish granny said the same thing, you'll go to the bad fire, which is... Yeah. It must have been pretty ubiquitous in those days. Uh, so what, tell us a wee bit about the, the, the plot, um, Quentin, if you could. It's a long time since I wrote it. I'm struggling to remember. No, the, the <laughs> plot was actually, the, the, uh, the seed was planted in the previous book, Cold Case, um, in which something came up uh, that was really not relevant to the plot, but was 
really tucked away for future reference. And this is it. It's also a cold case. It's about the suicide of a, a lady counsellor uh, nine years before. Uh-huh. And, uh, Bob Skinner, my ever-present hero, is yes. well, he's, he's introduced to the story, but he doesn't want to investigate himself. So he passes it on to his daughter, who is a criminal defence lawyer, and asks her to have a look at it. Uh, she does. Mm-hmm. Uh, brings in a private investigator, because really the thing is too low down the food chain for her dad to do himself. Sure. And uh, things kick off from there, very unpleasantly for one or two people. But the thing that I like most about the book is uh-huh. that it lets me bring somebody back. Ah. Uh, in my third book, I had a character called Lenny Plenderweath, who was a great big bloke. He was a, the Americans would call a mob enforcer. He was a monster. Sure. And at the end of the book, after Lenny has committed a few homicides, all for good reasons, I have to say, he and Big Bob have a, an epic battle in the, um, the tropical greenhouse in the Botanic Gardens in Edinburgh. Um, Why wouldn't you? I mean, uh, well, it's a great, it's a great location. It certainly is, yes. But, but funnily enough, we wanted to do some filming in there a couple of weeks ago, and they wouldn't let us in the so and so's. But uh, <laughs> anyway, uh, so we just filmed outside. But the, that book ends with Lenny being banged up for several murders, and strangely enough, I found that I liked him. Right. So he kept sort of popping up just in, in references in, in subsequent books. Until how many years on in real time? Uh, 20, 26 years, no, don't, in real time, 23 years on, uh-huh. uh, I've been able to bring him back. Now, in Skinner time, it's only 10 years. And uh, if you scratch the surface, you'll realize that he's done a very short sentence for all those murders. But <laughs> we're not too bothered about that. I, I, like you, I like the way you refer to Skinner time there because, a, a bit like myself, you don't write into a specific time frame. I think that's right. I know Skinner does not age in real time. Uh, it, maybe it wasn't a conscious decision, but it's just the way this, the series evolved. Uh, I mean, well, to give you an example, when the, when I started writing, when I, when I wrote the first page of the first Skinner book, a pair of us were the same age. And now I'm 20 years older than them. <laughs> I know I've, I've that's similar to myself and, and Jim Daly, I must admit. Uh, I remember always in Heartbeat, if I don't know if you ever watched Heartbeat, I used to, it was a warm, glowing Sunday night kind of thing that I used to sort of chill out to after a heavy weekend of drinking. And uh, and inevitably you would have the car discs, you know, the tax discs in the cars, and they were always December 1969, and it never changed through the whole series. Of about twelve years or fourteen years, however long it ran, I don't remember. Um, so I think I believe, that, that's, I believe that's called dodgy continuity, but or maybe it was very, very good, <laughs> very good <laughs> continuity, um, because they'd have ended up nineteen eighty one. It just wouldn't have been quite the same. Uh, I mean, so, when, actually, when you you will find this as as your as your series evolves, you'll probably find that some people actually get younger. I did. Uh, <laughs> the first chief constable, Sir James Proud. Uh, he actually got younger as the series progressed. Right. Well, well. I mean, my main problem isn't the age. I've, I've kind, of, kind of got that in my head. But the problem I have is that names. Somebody can start off as as Jimmy Campbell and finish up as Walter McCulloch, and that can be a problem for editors. And in my head, it it's the same person, but on the page, clearly, it isn't. It can. It uh, can. It's happened to me, but. Uh... Not very often, but it's happened to me too. Yeah. Well, you, you'll be you'll be kind of a bit more. You'll you'll get above that kind of stuff. I'm just a sprog at this this crime writing business. I've only been going for well 2012, so I've got a lot to learn yet. But now, as we're talking about being young, we'll go back to your days in Motherwell, where you were brought up. Now, in say 1952, 51, 52, a young Quentin Jardin. What were your influences? What, what do you, culturally, I mean, in terms of reading, um, television wouldn't be in existence then. Can you let us know? Television, television was in existence. Uh-huh. I, saw, I saw the first television broadcast ever in Scotland. Oh. Uh, anybody who's my age would probably know what it was, but uh, 
Somebody who isn't might struggle to come up with it. It Double was the King's, fun. the King's Funeral. The King's uh, Funeral. That was yep. 1952, wasn't it? 1952. <laughs> on what was memorably known then as a nine-inch bush. And uh, <laughs> it was very slow. Uh, yes. Steady, don't corpse. Yes. Very slow. And... Yeah, remember, they, they, there was a gun carriage involved. Corbyn yes, I've seen yeah. Everybody was marching in slow motion. And, uh, but it was it was a moving picture in a box in my uncle's living room. And my God, it was exciting. Um, it must have been. Yeah. Uh, so, and, and, and this was the first... Then, what, what influenced me? Uh -huh. Well, I had a teacher at Nautop Primary. I'm not going to name the lady. But uh, anybody, any of my contemporaries who were in her class will know that she kept her belt, a big heavy lock yelly strap. Oh, yes. A, a discarded black magic chocolate box. <laughs> and if MD was for the lash, which happened frequently in her, her, her class, the box was part of the, the process. She would bring it out, open it slowly, and you were in for it. Oh, um, dear. I mean, I still think back to those days when teachers were actually allowed to assault six, seven, eight-year-old children on a big lump of leather. It just, just... I know. It takes my breath away when I think about it. I mean, it, it was it was used, um, it was supposed to be a deterrent, but and in Campbelltown anyway. And he, and, no, it, was a, it was a weapon. It was never a deterrent. Oh, it, it was, was absolutely a weapon. There was, and it was used with great alacrity down down, down at home uh, for, for reasons more to do with the teacher's frustration rather than anything to do with what the children had done. Anyway, yeah. that's a long story. Anyway, right, this, this teacher um, once gave us a play, a composition, let's call it a composition, Yep. Uh, my favourite book. Now, all right, when you're eight, you haven't actually read a hell of a lot of books. And you, know, you haven't got into individual judgments. But uh, mm. the subject of my composition was Roy Rogers and the Ghost of Mystery Rancho, which I described in some detail. And uh, uh, I got a big, you know, a big tick for the composition. Got a, black mark, a black mark for my choice of book. And uh, <laughs> I mean, even even then, even age eight, I thought, hold on a minute here. It's my choice, right? You know, we're not exactly. We're not, you know, you haven't asked me for quality control here. This this is just about a boot of <laughs> a boot of red and a light. So back off, then. Uh, that, that was my first influence. Yeah, I think I, I think, think, I think it, you know what it taught me, Denzel. Yeah, tell tell. It, it taught me never ever to give a fuck about any review of DC of any book you've written, because all it is is somebody's opinion. Well, that's and right. Ask yourself again, what right do any of us have to foist our opinion on what is really an intellectual experience? No two people will ever read the same book. And, and, and experience it in the same way. Yeah, exactly. It's an individual experience every time. Any person in the world reads a book, they get something different out of, out of it from the next person. That's absolutely true. And, and you know, it's the, the old theatre of the mind thing, the same with wireless or radio. Uh, you know, everyone experiences something that you can't see in a, in a different way. And yeah. that's why reading broadens the mind more than, you know, some just simply watching a television screen or a computer screen or whatever you do now. Uh, and I think that's why... Um, it's it's of such importance to, in education. Who have thankfully now stopped the idea that reading any kind of book you want is a is a bad thing. Yeah, you can read. I mean, I got, I got to say, in my secondary school career, right, we were given prescribed reading mm, yeah. uh, as part of the English course. <laughs> I mean, my dad was a great Walter Scott fan. I mean, he was probably one of the world experts in Walter Scott. I never could stand them. Yeah, it was, it was too <laughs> slow and, and draggy for me. The same, right. with, same with Dickens. Wonderful stories. Wonderful stories mm. when condensed. But, you know, plow your way through some of the, Dick the Dickensian language and it gets a wee bit tough. It was of its time. Um, yeah. I think they're the only people that survived that well. Wilkie Collins survives that quite well, um, I always thought. He, his books still sound relatively modern. Hmm. Not a big expert in Wilkie. 
well, the Moonstone was one of my favorite favorite books from, yeah. from being a child, and and in fact, one of the reasons that I probably I write crime fiction now, uh, and I always like you, I found Dickens great stories when you saw them condenser on a TV adaptation, etc. Uh, but th sometimes they they could drag. But Wilkie was great. Yeah, I must admit, if I was if I was to go back and read something from uh, another century, if you like, it'd probably be Gull Gulliver's Travels. And not well, necessarily for the Gulliver bit, but for the other ones, not, yeah. not for the Lilliput bit, rather. Yeah, because and, that that was all political satire, of course. That's right. The big enders and the little enders, magic. Which, which I don't think many people get nowadays that it was actually a very searing, cutting political satire of its time. Yeah. Uh, so you, you were you were reading your your Roy Rogers books, and the wireless would have been of huge importance in the Jardin household. For journey into space, sure. I mean, yeah, who who played Lemmy in Journey into Space? Well, now now you're now you're talking. I mean, that, that was before my mother was born. <laughs> and no, I, I have no idea. Douglas Skelton could tell you, but unfortunately, he's in a secret mission. Um, uh, even, even Douglas might struggle with this one. Who played Lemmy in Journey into Space? Lemmy and well, 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 can you tell us? Okay, there were actually two actors. Oh. The first one was David Kossoff, and the second one was Alfie Bass. Alfie, well, I remember Alfie Bass well. I mean, he even got as far as EastEnders, didn't he, in his latter years, um, I seem to remember. Don't remember that, but I do remember who played Jet Morgan. Oh, and who was that? Andrew Folds, who, who made it as far as the House of Commons and was quite a, a distinguished and vociferous MP for quite a few years. Or oh, that he would come back. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> no, I don't want any of them to come back. No, just... <laughs> well, see, Douglas will be getting worried again because we're speaking about politics. Uh, now, the wireless, of course, I remember the radio being in Campbelltown. It was something that was a bit hit and miss because the radio would work quite well in FM, which had just come in for, um, not long ago, UHF in those days, but on medium wave and long wave, it dopplered all over the place. Uh, but I realized that back in time, I mean, down in Kintyre was the sort of birthplace of, of radio. The first AM transmission across the Atlantic was made by Fessenden to Little Rock in Arkansas. Did you know that? No, I did not. There you are. There was a 400-foot-tall radio mast at one of the points just outside the village. You can still see the base of it today, and it was from that very mast that one of the, the first radio, first ever radio broadcast across the Atlantic took place. There you are. Magic. Magic. Uh, you still couldn't get Radio Luxembourg in Motherwell. And you still couldn't get Radio 1 in Campbellton in the 1970s. Yeah. So it just shows you how, I mean, Fessenden, who was the father of, of AM, um, he he uh, developed it mostly down in Kintyre. He used Kintyre a lot because of its geographical location and the bend of the earth and various other things. You mean it was just before he fell off? I think he did. I mean, I've fallen off quite often, <laughs> as as many of my friends down down in Campbellton will testify. I've fallen off the end of the earth quite a few times. <laughs> anyway, back to yourself, and uh, so you 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 grow up and and you decide on a career as most of us have to do. What is the first job a younger Quentin Jarden does? Well, after after leaving aside the holiday vacation jobs. Uh, after I had had my brief flirtation with uh, with the law, oh see, I, was, I grew up in a family. My parents were both teachers. They both swung a mean lock, Gilly. Although my dad's was my dad's was a just a little slip of a thing that he carried over his shoulder under his jacket. Sure. And only used when really somebody had pissed him off. But uh, <laughs> I was brought up thinking that, or thinking no, I was brought up to to believe that uh, you had to belong to one of the professions. Sure. Right? So I was really raised to think along that. My first thought was, right, I'm going to be a doctor. Uh, but I realized fairly quickly that my sciences weren't good enough. Um, yes. So eventually I wound up with no other choice because my parents were dead against me being, being a teacher. Uh, I was left with no other choice but to enroll in the law school as they stay in the States. And on day one, 
I mean, I, I learned two things. I learned that the bar was in the basement and the snooker room was in the attic. <laughs> and spent my university career alternating between the two of them because, I've, you know, the way, I'm actually still a bit bitter about this. Um, right, I'm a 17-year-old kid. I go to Glasgow University. Uh, I study a, a degree course where there are five degree subjects in the first year. If I'd gone to St Andrews, I could have mm. done five degrees, degree subjects and come out with a law degree. Yes. Um, but uh, other little things, like you're doing a con constitutional law class. Now, I'd hire Latin. I mean, I, I could read a bit of Cicero, sight read it. Um, but I was educated in Scotland. Now, Latin is taught, there's the Oxford way and there's the Cambridge way. Mm -hmm. And uh, in Scotland, we were taught Latin with the hard C, right? Mm -hmm. There are no soft seas and just can't. Right. So I walk into a constitutional law class and uh, <laughs> the lecturer is a Cambridge man. Right. So he starts uh, well, reciting Latin with a soft C. Couldn't you understand them? <laughs> yeah. That is the, that's the level of incompetence that I found in the, the university in that course. And it still makes me angry to think about it. I mean, anyway. of course, and, and these days, everybody and their friends get a degree. Uh, and they're probably equivalent to an O grade in our, in our day. No, I would, I'd pitch them a bit higher than that. I mean, two, okay, two a higher. They were graduates, but uh, I would... Um, nah, you just, I couldn't get out there fast enough, to tell you the truth. And, sounds, like, uh, so, sounds a bit like my experience of tertiary education, I must admit. Uh, I think there was a lot of... I mean, even, even back in the, the 80s, there was a lot of snobbery going on and a lot of, of teaching to rote yeah, and not so much involvement in any kind of um, realism or actuality, as they would say in political circles. But then again, we're in the double skeleton territory, so we'll not mention that. So, no, well, I mean, basically, my my experience was that it didn't actually give a shit about the students. So no, I mean that was also true. Simple as that. Yeah. I mean, well, I'll give you without prolonging this. Uh, my first first class at Glasgow University was a one-term subject called the, the Law of Scotland or something. Let's just call it that. One-term sure. subject. There was one prescribed textbook. Because it was a new subject, you couldn't buy it second-hand in ABC down in, uh, in Bath Street. Oh, no. You had to buy a brand-new copy. <laughs> uh, the lecturer was Professor David M. Walker. And never in 100 years will you guess who wrote the textbook. It wasn't Mr. Walker by any chance. By a strange coincidence, it was. <laughs> uh, yeah, he's dead now, so I can call that a wee bit of corruption. But that, that to me, is what it was. See, uh, we, sh we should have thought of that before. That. What, what, what did I do when I escaped from the university? Yes, I, uh -huh. I, got a, I got a job in my local paper, and I loved it. I was there until I was 24, and uh, our editor was a great bloke called Robin. And Robin... He, he was a great bloke. He wrote his copy in green green ink with a fountain pen. He never <laughs> actually went to cover any stories. His, the high point of his career was uh, when he published an obituary of someone who was not, in fact, dead. Oh, um, I was going to say it's the high point. No, it, was the, it wasn't the highest point. The highest point was when he actually <laughs> did it again. <laughs> did you not like this guy? No, different, different people entirely. <laughs> but, uh, exactly. After the second the incidents, Robin never went to a funeral without reading the nameplate in the coffin. <laughs> Just in case. Yeah. <laughs> so that, that, basically, Robin, Robin sat in his wee room and this tumble-down building that housed the Motherwell Times, and the boys ran the paper. The boys and Margaret, sorry, I must give Margaret a name check. She worked in the Bell's Hill paper. I worked True. in the Motherwell. But, uh, yeah, that, that was great. I loved it. I mean, started as first job, go and check what happened in the police station over the weekend. Second job, go and sit in the, the borough police court, which was hilarious. Oh, I can imagine. The stuff of which the weekly news was made. Uh, and, uh, you know, gradually as you get older, you get more to do. So I wound up being the chief reporter, which uh, meant, uh, meant it was... I ran the paper, you know, if, if I had something that needed doing and nobody else to do it, I'd ask the editor to do it and he would do it. Right. Um, and uh, he, he did the, the the politics, he did the football, he did everything. And, Great, uh, 
and you could do it and be completely subjective about it. When yeah. I took over, when I took over the football, I uh, I learned a lesson very quickly, mm-hmm. and that was it's not your job to be impartial, not in a local, not in a local paper. <laughs> no, so, <laughs> I mean the, the the first game I covered it was a pre-season friendly between Motherwell and this Danish team of amateurs. Okay, and uh, it was a no-scoring draw, and I wrote it as I saw it. And middle of next week, I went up to Fir Park. No, I phoned Fir Park. Uh, got on the phone to Bobby, Bobby Howe, the manager. I was, I was looking for a lead to the for the, the team in the first league game. Yeah. And Bobby said, you got some fucking nerve phoning me. <laughs> Bobby, come on, Bobby. And that, I wrote it as I saw it. Oh, oh yeah. I mean, you were out with the parameters and you couldn't. He's got, I said, yeah, well, look at the fucking chances we made. <laughs> Or the days, the halcyon days yeah. of I mean, I think so that's, I, I think I learned my lesson. Yeah, I learned my lesson. And I got on very well with Bobby after that because every story, I wrote, every football report I wrote was completely biased. <laughs> I think that's the saddest thing about today's world is the demise of the newspaper industry. Um, and, and, especially, the char- and the characters in football writing. And the characters in football writing also. You, I do you all remember Rex of the Sunday Mail, yeah? Yes, I do indeed, yes. I remember Bob, all the, the great... Bob, yeah, Bob Kingsley. Uh-huh. Um, that was, well, that was Rex's real name. Yes. I mean, he ran this charity that uh, provided commentary, live commentary, for the blind at football matches, right? Uh-huh. Uh, so, okay, Bob does this. One day I got to cover Motherwell and Partick away game, so mm. I'm there well early. So I go into the Queen's Cross Queen's Cross vaults for a pint, and there's hardly anybody there, just me and another couple of blokes. And then this guy comes in with a white stick and taps, <laughs> his, taps his way up to the bar, very heavy to the side. Like, fine. And then another guy comes in with a white stick, tap, 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 <laughs> and eventually there's nine of them. Oh this, this, this was the party thistle blind supporters club. I thought you'd say it was the team. <laughs> no, that was the, that was the week before. That, that was, it was the party thistle blind supporters club, and uh, I'm not getting corpse here, but if I do, I apologise. <laughs> That's okay. Anyway, they're all drinking pints, so the inevitable happens. You know, you go for fish. So the way they did it. They formed this sort of hung the white sticks over their arm, formed a conga, and they got a sighted guy to lead them through. But it was then a fairly substantial crowd <laughs> into the gents in this great long conga. Oh, so it's a bloke any sort of humor about them. When they get in there, they would have lined them up in a circle facing in the way. But <laughs> I can't even answer ask that question. But, <laughs> It, it was one of the funnier real life experiences of my life. Uh, <laughs> going to the going to the opposite the opposite extreme and moving on twenty Just, years. Please. Jumping jumping to nineteen eighty four when I uh-huh. threw a couple of jobs mm-hmm. and uh, I was working for we're in Skelton country here, I know. Oh no. I can't I can't even not mention it. I was right. uh, the organisation I worked for was, was national and uh, it had big conferences at the seaside. Yes, and I, I one of them was the in picture. 1984, and it was in Brighton. Uh-huh. And uh, well, that uh, there's a big party on the Thursday night right. in, the main, in the main hotel, which uh, you know, I was at and left about half past twelve, quarter one. Sure. Went to my bed, put the light out. Uh, woke up half past seven next morning and the light was on. Mm-hmm. I think that's strange. Yeah. Uh, so I thought no more about it and switched on the telly. And uh, here's this stuff. Uh, about the Brighton bombing? Was the home. And uh, it's, they'd actually, the IRA had blown the hotel up. Is that, were, you, were you actually staying in that hotel, Quinn? No, I was in the hotel next to it. Oh, right next door. Yes, uh-huh. But uh, the reason the light was on is that my hotel was evacuated. Well, and the way they evacuated, somebody just ran around every room, switched the light on, said, go, 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 without checking the, 
Kenny was actually awake. And and, be, and being the Scotsman that you are, you had had probably a sufficiency of. Um... No, I had strangely enough. Oh, that's not so bad. I hadn't. Uh, but um, I discovered afterwards they actually blew up a suspect pa- package underneath my bedroom window. <laughs> and you missed it. Yeah. Anyway, it... I got up to a scene like of which I never. I wish I hadn't seen. Obviously, and, it was a terrible, terrible thing. I never wish to see again. But uh, it's. Yeah, I think I think that was the defining moment in British politics, in that it changed our perception of what could happen and um, and what did happen, and it changed so many lives, and, and there's so many and people died, and yeah, people did. It was it was look, it was on nine eleven. We don't think of it in those times, but it was. Yeah, and, uh, I mean, I remember. I mean, oh, some of the things you saw. Oh, I'm I mean, can imagine. Right. I mean, I was. I was I was in the, uh, oh, right, uh, the, we had to set up, in, in, the, in the press side, we had to set up a, a reaccreditation thing because the conference went on. Sure, a, lot, yeah. a lot of people had lost their, uh, their accreditation. Uh, oh. for, for example, I'm sort of issuing new passes and this bloke came in and I had no idea who he was. He was just wearing, he was wearing a black collar neck and that was it. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was Robin Day. He'd lost, he, he was in the Grand Hotel, and his room had been destroyed, and he'd lost all his bow ties and his glasses. And he had to wear them. Oh, goodness gracious. Uh, yeah. Uh, uh, it, it, not, not a nice man, but we won't go there. And, and I know Mrs. Thatcher was absolutely determined that the conference go on. Yeah. Yep. Uh, I watched a documentary about it just recently. Um, it was a very good doc- It was on the BBC, I think. And it was uh, a really, really well put together. And it, and it, and it told me lots of things that, that I hadn't known Hitherto, I was a I was um, a young student at the time, and and I remember myself, my friend from Campbellton, were having a right good um, push up in Paisley, and uh, we woke up the next day to the to the news, and it really was. And to be at at the event as you were, it must have been it must that must affect you still, surely. Well, it's not something you ever forget. I mean, some no. things you remember are quite funny. I mean, there, there was an there was an Irish guy there. He was an he was an MP, a Northern Irishman. Of the mm-hmm. of the unionist persuasion, okay. and uh, he was he was actually shouting himself, but he couldn't shut up. I mean, he was ran, he was ranting about our press office, and he says, "You know, the IRA shot me seven times in the head." He said, "But they still couldn't kill me." And we're all thinking that's because they couldn't find your brain, mate. <laughs> but uh, oh, you know, it's, it's the odd things that stick in your mind. It's really, it's really, as you say, it's one of the defining moments, <clears throat> certainly in our recent political history, and uh, and I think we're going through another convulsion. Thankfully, without the same um, violence and loss of life um, as as in 1984. Uh, but uh, you know, that's something I hadn't known, Quentin, and I'm sure people would be, be very interested. I mean, you could, you were feet away from being out of existence yourself. No, I was half probably was maybe half an hour away from being there when the thing happened. Oh right, so as close as that. Yeah. But, <clears> yeah, <throat> I mean, look, there was again no names, no pipe drill. Sure. But uh, on the Monday of that week, uh, I would happen to be in the Grand. I was I was just leaving, and a car dropped. Two people I knew from Scotland got out, and mm. uh, they weren't active politicians. They were on the voluntary side. And, uh, and I said hello to them, and uh, they'd driven down. And uh, Donald said, yeah, I said, how good trip? He said, no, roads were a bit heavy, but I'm not that bad on the way back. Well, he never broke. Um, mm-hmm. The bomb was, wasn't there all sweet. It was behind, it was behind their bath panel. Oh, and he had, he survived with two broken legs, I think. Uh, his wife died six months, six weeks later. Oh dear! From uh, well, she just inhaled two yeah. lungfuls of dust. Yeah, that's, that's yeah. terrible. Is it any wonder that I went up writing train fiction? No, not at all. I mean, no, to go through no, something like that. It isn't. It isn't. Is it isn't. any? Is it any wonder that sometimes it gets a bit tough? No, it isn't. I mean, no. I. I I've actually never read one of my books once it's been printed from cover to cover. Mm. But lately I went back into the early ones 
and uh, I, I realise now just how bloody in particular Skinner's Festival. I get all that stuff out in Skinner's Festival. I mean, just blew things up all over the fucking place. Do Do you think that was a, a kind of catharsis for you? I mean, I kind of. I, I do now. Yeah. Yeah. I'm getting it all out of my system. You know, your system because nobody can go through an experience like that. I remember um, the Chinook helicopter crash on the Mull of Kintyre, and yeah. um, I spoke to one of the policemen who was first. I think he was one, the very first person on the scene, or, or very close to being the first person on the scene. And um, you know, I think that still lives with him today, uh, and I, I, it's clearly something he's never ever going to forget. And, and nor should we. No, I don't think you would. I mean, no, I, well, no. an organisation I used to work for, uh, had I still been there when the Pan Am flight came down over Lockerbie, mm. chances are I would have been down there. Now, I knew several guys who were, and none of them were ever the same after it. No, I mean, that that that, that was even more horrific. Um, that, 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 yeah. It's mind-blowing, isn't it? It really is yeah. mind-blowing. And the apocryphal story is that had had the plane come down three minutes later, it would have gone down over Campbellton as as Campbellton was it was directly under the, its flight path, mm-hmm. um, and it just shows you the the you know the the chances and the who knows what what's going to happen to us. I mean, both of us have suffered um, uh, rather nasty health events and and have sort of been fortunate to survive them. But in another another world in another time, would that have happened? Uh, no, but something similar would. Yeah, yes, yeah, it's, yeah. it's it's really when you you know but look, but but a hundred years after the first world war. Yes, I mean that 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 was just that was an appalling thing. Well, well, yes, you think look at the numbers involved. It was just incredibly that that as a people, we tolerated it. Mm. You know? Yeah. And of course, things have. Think, I'm, things... I'm not a big Manix fan, but uh, if you know, if you tolerate this, your children will be next. That, yes. that literally happened in the First World War, and and then it happened again in the Second World War. Thankfully, to not not to the same extent of butchery, but certainly had had the war gone on any, any longer and nuclear weapons had been used to their full extent, it would have been worse. I I dare say. Yeah. We'll we'll move on from those sad sad events and get get into your writing. Your first um, novel was published. That's even sadder, man. <laughs> Not at all. I remember actually your first novel coming out because I had been a, a great fan of and still am a great fan of Ian Rankin's writing, and I saw and of course as this happens now to me, people finish my book and say, "Oh, Denzel, when's your next one coming out?" And I say to them, well, why don't you try X, Y, and Z, Douglas Skelton or Neil Broadfoot or whoever, whoever. Um, and I was looking around for something similar, and I I picked up on Quentin Jardin. Now, tell me the road to publication. Uh, hmm, let's go, okay. 1989. Mm-hmm. Uh, on my holidays in Spain, picked up a book in the airport, uh, it was the novelisation of a BBC Scotland TV drama series and I'd missed the last episode. Right. So I didn't, I didn't even know who'd done it. So I, I picked this book up and if I had just gone to the end, found out who'd, who'd done it and put it down again, I might not, nothing may have happened, but I didn't. I read the whole book and it was execrable. Uh, <laughs> and when I was finished, I tossed it across the terrace and I said I could do better myself. And uh, Irene, my my late wife, uh-huh. she uh, narrowly missed it. And she said, well, it's time you did. Yeah. Right. But, yeah, it's about time you did. Sure. So, uh, right. I, I regarded that as an all. <laughs> of course. And you did do it. And and you did so very successfully, Quentin. Cool. Never mind. We're yes, that happened. There. We're still there. That happened. To, right. with, we were with Emma last week, and that happened to her too. Her husband phoned her in the middle of the thing. Don't worry about it. Uh, if it's important, we can stop and recontinue. But if you want, if you can continue, we shall. Yeah, no, I, I can continue, no problem. Uh, Good man. Natalie missed that. Natalie missed that with this flying paperback. Went down the village, bought some pens, bought some pads, and looked at this white piece of paper. Uh huh. With no idea what I was going to put on it. In fact, the first thing I ever put in print and on a paper was sweat. 
because <laughs> it was it was a warm Easter in Spain. Uh, so from there, I don't know what made me do it, mm-hmm. but I put myself back to Edinburgh in diametrically opposite weather. I was an advocate's close. I was pushing down. There was a dead guy divided like gall into three parts. And uh, in the close mouth, this guy appears. And he's wearing my, my raincoat. Mm-hmm. He's got my pal Tony's prematurely grey hair. Mm-hmm. And uh, I don't know where the name Bob, Bob Skinner came from. Well, actually, that's not true. I do know where the name Bob Skinner came from. But I'm not going to tell you. Oh, I see. Um, it's a secret. Well, the skin up part of it, anyway. Uh, okay. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, it's, he was there, and uh, that's it. And that's, that's how it's been be- in my head ever since. And th- this guy, does he does he look the same now as he did then? Uh, he's, he's aged a little bit, but not, not significantly. There's a bit of a description of him in uh, Bad Fire at the start, when his daughter's ah. talking about him. Um, right. Yeah, he's aging, aging gracefully. Still, like, like still looks after him, still pretty fit, unlike me. Or, or, or definitely not me. Um, oh. And Quentin, you're talking about Bob Skinner. Uh, roughly, what age do you think Bob Skinner is now? I just need to look at my car for that. I, uh, he's, he's 54. 54. The reason I say that is that I've got a personalised number plate which involves Skinner's age. Uh-huh. I'm not going to tell you the rest of it because uh, I'd have my tyres like doing all over Scotland. But... <laughs> by, by, by infuriated folk. Yeah. Uh, and Skinner, Skinner himself, he's notably tenacious. Uh, and that tenacious, he's on to his what number of book now? The bad fire is number uh, number thirty-one. Thirty-one. Yep. How? I have a backlist of forty-eight, I think. Oh yeah, I, I counted them just just earlier this morning. How difficult is it for for you to sustain a series? Um, you know, for thirty-one books. Uh, you mean how difficult has it been? Yes, well, yes. Strangely, strangely not. I mean, right. it's, just some, it's something that's happened that's evolved. Uh-huh. I mean, first one I did for fun, never really thinking it would ever be published. Um, but when it was, right, you, you will you will know this, they don't just want one book, they want a series. Of course. Now, first contract was for three books, second mm-hmm. was for three books, next one is for four, and we've been going on that ever since. Right. Um, now, I will... The next contract I do, if I do another one, it will be for one book. Uh-huh. Uh, not because I don't feel I can do more than one, but because I'm hacked off the way the publishing has gone. Yes. <laughs> and, you know, there, there are, my publisher, when I, when I, when I started, mm-hmm. the first, first book, Skinner's Rules, uh, headline with whom I, to whom I'm still joined at the hip, where mm-hmm. I'd relatively new company. I mean, books published in 93. <coughs> they, were probably, they were formed in 86. Yes. Uh, young, thrusting, everybody in it was an enthusiast. Mm-hmm. And I just loved being part of that. Because authors were made to feel part of it. You were involved. You were They, <coughs> they talked to you. It's like a family, in, in other words. Um, you know, you're yeah, a family yeah. kind of atmosphere, yeah. And it was it was found, founded by a guy called Tim, Tim Hewley Hutchison. No, <coughs> Tim, uh, he, he had a great vision for a while, mm-hmm. but um, when would it be? Maybe 06, 07. Mm-hmm. Uh, he decided that he wanted to go further. Actually, maybe earlier than that, but let's not bother about that. And uh, he wanted to expand it in the States. This is the story I was told. Uh, to do that, he decided he needed to be involved headline with somebody else. <coughs> so he sold the business to W.H. Smith. Mm-hmm. Now, I, I wondered at the time why Britain's biggest bookseller would want to buy a publisher. Yes, it's an odd one, isn't people it? wondered that. And we were all quite right because it didn't work. Um, mm. So a few years down the road, headline was sold again and it became part of the Hachette book group. 
which is owned by a French family investment trust, basically. Okay. So everything I do, everything that all the other Hachette authors do, is basically there to enrich a French family. And I fucking hate that. <laughs> you know, I, I, don't put, I don't put any make any bones about it. I just hate it. Okay. It's not what I signed up for, but I'm tied into it because my bike list there. Yes, yes. I mean, there were, there were people in there in headline as it was, and they've just disappeared. Mm-hmm. You know, they've, you know, they were brilliant at their jobs, but maybe they were too costly or whatever. But because, uh, you know, individual companies became a group. We had, yeah. instead of an individual fueled sales forces, we, we had a group fueled sales force. Which yes. is massively overworked, and uh, I will say no more about that. No, but, no. Uh, it's just every penny is pinched. Every penny is pinched. I happened to, by coincidence, I had a message today from a guy I know who is also a headline author. Mm-hmm. Now, his contract copies of a new book have just been delivered to him. Yes. And... Uh, when he looked at it, he discovered that one chapter has been printed in a, in a completely different font size from the rest of the book. <laughs> so uh, he said, well, you need to call these back. He said, no, we're not going to reprint. You know, they're, they're, they're leaving them out there. So they're just going to stay out there with that, with that error in the books? Yep. We're, we're not going to correct it until we reprint. I think I think one of the things that surprised me at first about, about publishing was... Um, some of the things that were let go and some of the things that happened that, that could easily have been, been avoided. And I started off with a truly terrible publisher who I will not give, to whom I will not give the oxygen of publicity. They were a small Glasgow outfit. That's um, a fine Thatcherite right phrase, Dettel. <laughs> yes. Well, I, I, I'm too young to remember Margaret Thatcher, clearly. <laughs> I met but, but Well, of course you would have done, yes. And did she, make, she obviously made an impression on you. Not much. Really? No. Did you find her a kind of anodyne kind of character? No, I didn't, but she was so surrounded by her own little clique that the the, the guys who worked for the party couldn't get near her. Right, yeah. So you were kind of, you were you were at, at a distance yeah. from her. Um, I don't know when, I think it's the same, not just with politicians. She was surrounded, she, with, with one great exception, Bernard Ingham, whom I knew mm. in She was surrounded by arse kissers. No, two great, two great exceptions, Cecil Parkinson who was, for all his unfortunate private life, was a thoroughly top bloke. He he was well known for for his dalliances. um, Just the one. Just just, just dalliance singular. Uh, And it's interesting, I think this happens not just to politicians, but to people in the public eye in general now, whereby it's hard to get to the the real person behind the image. Um, And I don't know, I think some people get consumed by their own their own image or identity, whatever you'd like to call it. Get very far up themselves, I think, is the phrase we're struggling for here. That, that, I was putting it in the, the high Eskimo Campbelltown, uh, <laughs> <laughs> and you gave, you gave it the mother, well, yeah. you got it, got it right up on. Quite right, Quentin. Now, we'll go back. Where were we? We'll go back to publishing. You... You were published in 1993, as we've spoken about earlier. And so you have been publishing books right the way through the uh, technical revolution, the tech revolution in publishing, where we've yeah. seen the rise of the ebook. We've seen now, we're seeing now the rise of the audiobook. How do you see that? And, and how do you think that's affected publishing in general? Uh, I think audiobooks are completely different. It's different. Mm. Audiobooks are great, and that in time, audiobooks will do away. Audiobooks and ebooks will do away with the need for large print, for example. Yes. You know, you, you'll just look at you'll look at an ebook, and you'll wind up with type size. Simple as that. Mm. <laughs> you can do it already. Yeah, I mean, I had some editions. Um, I mean, I, I'm reading. I'm reading Robert uh, uh, Graves, Count Bolsarius at the moment, and I I bought the book. Uh, but it was a peng- I think it's a penguin, an old penguin edition I got a hold of. And I just, even with my glasses, I can't read the print, but I can read the ebook version, no bother. Yeah. Mm. So, so you, you feel that, that, that that'll kind of 
sweep away the need for large print, etc. But do you think do you see any downsides? Yeah, well, yes, yes, I do. Go on the audio site. I mean, I'm a, I'm a, I think downloadable audio books are great. A few years ago, I was doing a signing, an advertised signing in a, a bookstore in Edinburgh, and mm-hmm. uh, the lady came up to me and she asked me about audio books. You know, it's, uh, with, uh, I mean. The problem, she says, is that they're on CDs or they're on tape cassettes and all the rest. Now, downloadable audio was there at the time. And I said, mm. well, I'm not. She's, she, my granddaughter can't access these. Right. Her granddaughter was was blind. Okay. And uh, so I said, well, hold on a minute. What age is your granddaughter? Well, she maybe, let's say she was 20. So, mm-hmm. okay, she'll, she'll actually be able to access them on her iPad now, her iPod or whatever. Yes, eh? Uh, Granny didn't understand that. So no. Is your granddaughter here? And she was. So she came over and we had a chat. And Great uh, stuff. It's a whole new world opened up for her. Absolutely. I mean, I mean when my mum in her latter days was, was losing her sight, mm. the, the library used to bring her along audio books and they would have been a dozen cassette tapes. Yeah. If you're blind, how do you manage that? Yeah, you couldn't physically, yeah, the, the actual tactile. Yeah. So yeah. That, that side of it is great. As far as uh, e-books are concerned, well, I mean, it, it was the monster in the cupboard for a while. Mm-hmm. My earliest contracts have got references in them to a form of, of electronic publishing of which we know not yet. Basically, Mine still have that. <laughs> well, <laughs> you said you were updated. I well, just I hope, I hope you's not listening. Um, but the thing is that it's it really I find it frustrating, laughable almost, is that with that you know the, the advanced knowledge when mm. it all happened and the technology clicked into place, it took the publishing industry by surprise. And you prepared for it. It still doesn't let you know what's happening. Yeah, and I think when I started, at least, I mean, I had the first book in 2012, and that was just reaching the kind of peak. I think the peak of ebooks was around about 2014, 15. And I then we saw. Well, I, I, do, I, I, think that, I think it's plateaued. And in fact, I think there's been a decline in ebook sales over the last. That's what your publishers tell you, Denzel. I nope. don't believe that's true. Well, that's a, that's a, that could be a valid point. I, I think there's been. You, you know, I think there's a, a lot of people read ebooks, but do they read, read a lot of authors, published authors on ebook? And I think that's where the anomaly lies um, between published writers or self published writers and, and on the likes of Kindle. Uh, a lot of people might be reading them, but are they reading as many Denzel Myricks or Ian Rankins or Quentin Jardins or um, Val McDermott's or whomever? Uh, I don't know if that's true because of the pricing structure. Mm, yeah, you don't sound convinced. I, I don't know it's true. Either. None of us know it's true because you know we we don't know. We can't see the broader picture. No, but, uh, I mean I I do know, but just looking at my own royalty returns, how many mm. printed books I'm selling as, as opposed to how many ebooks, mm. and I I don't see it plateauing. Right. You know, but, I, don't, I don't see that. Uh, the, but the other the other question is going back to the the centralization of sales forces i mean i mean okay i'm wondering how hard they're actually bloody trying <laughs> you know you, you've suddenly got, you've suddenly got a single one bloke one one sales rep who instead of having uh x authors whoever on these lists with headline or, or whatever now have x times five when you bring in yeah. spear little brown orion you name it <clears throat> yeah, and, and constable, etc. It's it's all getting downsized. Everything's getting downsized all the time. But that's true of every industry, not just publishing, isn't it? Yeah, I think the sales forces are getting demotivated. That, that's that's what worries me. They're, I think they're I actually think... not. They're not trying. The publishers are not trying hard enough. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, Look, I th- let's face it. I mean, ebooks are great for publishers. There's more yeah. money in it for. Because they don't need to do really about it. They put it up and that's it. Right, look at look at royalty rates. I mean, mm. the, the going rate, going industry rate uh, for an e-book, for an author, is 25% of 
of publishers' net receipts. Now, how the hell do we know what net means? <laughs> you know, well, okay, you could... we're, we're, we're sitting here and we've got contracts that give us 25%, unless we're very lucky, 25% of publishers' net receipts. If mm -hmm. we self-publish, forget about printed books. If we self-publish, put our work in Amazon, price it at a certain level, then we will get 70% of the published price back from Amazon. Mm. What the mm. hell are we still involved with publishers for? <clears throat> I think because... Um, you don't have the same scope as a published. I mean, a self-published author can appear on Kindle. Um, you not you don't have a printed book necessarily, and if you do have a printed book, it's pay on demand and it won't appear in bookshops. I think that's still important to quite a lot of writers and, and libraries and things like that. And I, I dare say that's important to you as well. Yeah, well, it's important. It's important for me, but I know enough about the business to build. You know, if I did decide to self-publish, which is in my mind, all uh, right, it, it may happen. It may not. But uh -huh. if I did decide to self-publish, then I would focus on the ebook, no question. But I know enough to produce a, a, a <clears> run of hardbacks or, or trade paperbacks for the library market. It's not, it's not rocket science. But then again, getting into the uh, the bookshops would be a more difficult proposition, would it not? Uh, why? There are plenty of freelance salespeople out there. Sure, sure. I mean, it's very, it's a very interesting. I think we live in very interesting times in publishing. There's no doubt about that, and um, the addition. Of, of audiobooks as well as as ebooks has 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 widened that scope, um, and it's hard to see. Uh, some I think in some ways parts of the publishing industry haven't come to terms with this. Yeah, I think you, I think that's fair to say, isn't it, Quinn? Oh yeah, the, I, I think my original point about the, what's happened to my company is that the the, the publishing industry that, that I knew mm. is beyond recognition, and you know it, it's. It's all about money now. It's as simple as that. You know, there's there's no love for the product, none. No, that 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 seems to be the case. And then you look back in the in the past at some of the, the editions of books that were produced, and the quality and the and the care that went into their production. And now, and the and the opposite, the opposite. I, was mm. telling, I told this story the other night in, in bigger. Um, right. I've been to Vancouver a few times at the, the book festival there, and the first mm -hmm. time I went. They, uh, they took us out to a, a, a crime store, a specialist uh, bookstore to sign some sign stock. Uh, mm -hmm. There were three or four of us, all, three or four of us there. Uh, Kathy Rice was there, Ian Rankin, me, a uh, Canadian guy called Lawrence. And mm -hmm. uh, oh, right, we go to this store, they made a fuss of us, they gave us books to sign it, everything else, fine. Uh, so I'm signing my lot, and this guy, this guy puts something in front of me, and it doesn't have a cover on it. Oh, it's just, it's just, and what it was, it was a publisher's pre-publication copy. This was <clears throat> they sent, they used to distribute to the trade. Bye. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's, it's in his shop and it's for sale. So the, the price was in pencil. Let, let's say it was, it was $20. Uh -huh. uh, so I signed it. And the, the, the shop owner took it from me. And he gets a pencil and he puts a one in front of the two. Put it back, put it back in the shelf. Back in the shelf. <laughs> <laughs> Easy money, eh? That, that, that just wouldn't happen anymore. No, no. Uh, although I think that, that James Daunt has made a, a, a cracking job of revitalising or reviving um, Waterstones. You mean keeping uh, it alive? Yeah, because I, I feared that, that it would be it would go... And that was that was a that would have been a real blow to us. Well, yeah, it was. It, yes, it wouldn't. It wouldn't. Uh, no, no, forget that. It would. I mean, take yeah. the, the last big specialized book chain of five. They would have been would have been very, very, very bad. It would. Uh, it would have re revitalized and extend the independent sector. Well, yeah, there's a good there's a good point there, and that's that's certainly true. But I mean. You know, it's interesting when big chains, Mother Care, have just just gone down recently, and and um, all the rest of them have, have sadly left the high street. Uh, and here are Watersons now opening stores rather than closing them, which is a very interesting concept. Uh, they're doing both, though, aren't they? Are they? Are they, sh are they shutting at the same time? Well, I think that what they're doing is moving about. I mean, mm. there, there used to be. Okay, it was a bit of an accident, and Autikers and other collapses had something to do with it. Yes, but, uh, in the centre of Edinburgh, 
there were there were three big Watsons bookstores mm-hmm. uh, within half a mile. Yeah. Now that's been rationalised. It's not a one. I think. Mm. You know, okay. Let's say there there is an acquisition. There's a merger, whatever. Mm. Uh, Watsons went out of shops that didn't really want. Yeah, yeah, so, uh, of course. Know, they, and possibly in places they didn't want them either. Mm-hmm. I mean, I bet three books within a short a, a short area is is clearly a lot too, too many for any high street trader. Yeah, but at the time it would be cheaper to keep them open than just to walk away from the lease. Yeah, well, there's that. I mean, the, people don't realise when they see those these big chains going down that a lot of what cripples them is not just a lack of footfall, but the amount of rent or lease payments they're paying on premises yeah. and the amount of yeah. um, rate the rates they have to pay. That's one of the things that screwed Thomas Cook. And staying in, staying in our own industry. That's why James Thin went went to you. Yes. You know, he expanded and bought a chain of stores that were just entirely their own place. And it and didn't work it, out. It brought, it brought the company down. A great old company as well. And, and yeah. lovely shops they were too. I remember there was a shop, a wee shop in Campbellton called, well, it was called Martin's in my day, but it had been called Witherspoon's, I think. And it was like walking back in time going into that bookshop. And I can still remember the smell of the place to this day. Uh, and sadly, it's long gone. It's The proprietor died. She worked in it until the, not long before she died, actually. Mm-hmm. And it was a bit of a legend, legendary bookshop in Argyll. In fact, my publisher, Hugh Andrew, also remembers it very, very well. And he used to love going in for the very same reasons that I did. And they'd book some stairs. They'd book, it was one of these higgledy piggledy places that you used to find and there was nothing corporate about it. It was just a bookshop you'd go and look about and it was a really, really fascinating place to be and I loved that place. Um, but sadly, we've gone all corporate these days, but there are still wonderful independent bookshops out there. And, and Yeah, I, well, I mean, I, I actually chose, well, I chose uh, when the question of a launch for, cold, for uh, Bad Fire came up mm. and there was a, a signal, say, well, there wasn't too much initiative being shown by <laughs> people 400 miles away. So yes. uh, I dropped an email to the lady, Saron Atkinson Price and Bigger. Mm-hmm. And said, yes, I've been there. How would you like a launch event? And Because uh, I've, I've been in the store a few times. And mm-hmm. uh, I, know, I know them and I like them. And I've, I've got from full of admiration for what they do. Sure. So, uh, so they said, yeah, let's do that. So we did the launch event down there. And... Uh, yeah, it wasn't, very, it wasn't a very big house, but it was full. And yeah, it was I, I, I was down in the summer as well, and um, yeah, I know yeah, your visit is still well remembered. <laughs> is it? Yeah, I'm, I'm quite, I'm quite sure they were, they were, they were, they were, they were very kind to me on the night. Um, they're, very, they're very kind. Period. Yes, it's a, it's a great bookshop as well, and and there, and there are so many. We were up in Granton um, for the festival just a few weeks ago, and that was. That's also a great. There's a great wee bookshop in, in Granton, which uh, is fantastic. So I, I've I've kept you for for long enough, Quentin. But we'll, we'll before we depart this mortal coil with with uh, this, oh, edition, yeah. <laughs> this edition of spook, spooks. You never let me finish there. We we shall ask you a wee bit more about if you can just sum up a wee bit about the bad fire, um, and and tell us a bit about that. The bad fire. Yeah. Is- it was about somebody breaking the first law of of cross examination. Right. Don't ask a question unless you know the answer. Exactly. Good point. An excellent point. And the bad fire is for sale across platforms and across across platforms in all good bookshops, even in a few bad ones. And <laughs> uh, at the moment, in two formats: hardback and trade paperback. Uh, hardbacks are pretty expensive but they look nice they do uh, indeed trade paperback is exactly the same thing inside with a soft cover on it with a soft and cover a, on it uh, and it's more heavily discounted so it's a better buy my goodness I, I, I say this because I know that all hardbacks are pretty much sold <laughs> <laughs> you old devil you <laughs> Quentin it's been an absolute pleasure speaking to you thank you so much for taking so much day. of your time same and day. we'll speak to you too and uh, this has been Spooks are Houses of Steel production uh, with Quentin Jarden. And don't forget to like us or favorite us on your podcasting platform of choice. 
uh, so that you don't miss an episode. Thank you for listening and goodbye. Are you awake right now? Hello? Thank mm-hmm. you.